1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every
0: weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. This story is the most read on the Bloomberg in the past one hour, and it talks about the CDC, it talks about a warning. It is not, though, specifically about the coronavirus. Let's get into the details. Bloomberg News senior medical reporter Michelle Cortez is back with us. She joins us on the phone from Minneapolis. I have to say, Michelle, I was like quick scanning, and I'm like, wait, what is this about?
2: Right. Exactly. As if 2020 couldn't get any worse. Carol. <laughs> it's terrible. But there is a, a virus that seems to be sweeping through the U.S. and the world, in fact, every other year. And it happens. It starts increasing, picking up in August and runs through November. And it leaves in its wake paralysis and affects mainly children average age of five and so the cdc is saying hey it's august it happens every even year 2020 is an even year so if you have children and they start complaining that their arm doesn't feel strong or their legs are suffering a little bit especially if they've had you know a little bit of a cough or a fever a few days ahead be on the lookout for that
0: what is it called
2: it's called acute flaccid myelitis. People call it like a polio-like syndrome, but it's not polio. They have looked for the, the cause of this, and they haven't been able to identify it. There is not polio in these kids, and so we know that that's not what it is. They think it's an enterovirus. It's called mm. d 68 and they see higher levels of that viral infection, but it's hard to catch because, as we're seeing with testing with coronavirus,
0: right. it's just difficult to catch it. Right. So, what the, it's kind of a warning to parents, especially amid with everything else that's going on, and and it's very important that you do kind of catch it early. Correct. Exactly.
2: So the thing is, is unfortunately for kids who start showing the, the signs of muscle weakness and and paralysis, many of them actually don't fully recover from it. There have been very rare cases of death, but there is this paralysis that can persist. So they want to get kids treated right away so that they can do an MRI, figure out if there is something in their central nervous system that's causing it, and start immediately rehabilitation efforts and things to keep their muscles strong so that what they
0: don't lose, they will continue to be able to use going forward. I have
2: to ask, no, No, go go ahead.
0: No, 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 you please finish.
2: So what they're worried about is that parents are going to say, oh, you know, he did have a little bit of a fever, but he's feeling better now. He's complaining that his arm or his leg is bothering him, but coronavirus is out there. We don't want to go to the doctor. We don't want to go to the hospital because we're afraid that it's going to get worse. And maybe we'll just watch him to see if he gets better. And the paralysis can happen just in hours. So it's very important if that's what you're seeing in your child to call your doctor. Go it's, to the emergency. It's room.
0: terrifying. Your story. You mentioned that the average age was five. I mean, and and the cases have been rising. Correctly, right? Correct. They-
2: Yeah, they have been rising. But it's also important to remember that it's very, very rare. And, of course, probably the vast majority of people who get this enterovirus don't have any complications at all, right? Mm. It's probably thousands and thousands of people who get it. And the numbers we're talking about are less than 250 in 2018. So. The the numbers are are small, but it started. We started seeing this significant increase in 2014. There were 120 cases in 2014, and then it increased in 2016. We were up to 238 or so in 2019. Now, or 2018. Now we
0: have seen already, even before August began, 16 cases so far this year. So. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot. You know, I don't, I'm not a dark person, Michelle, but I got to say that there is something with viruses and viral infections. It feels like we're seeing a lot more and a lot more that are, you know, very difficult to overcome.
2: That's, that's very true. And this is affecting kids. Coronavirus is affecting older people. Influenza is just around the corner. That hits everybody. Uh, you know, the good thing is, Carol, mm. social distancing, wearing a mask, it protects against all of these
3: things.
0: Isn't it amazing that I feel like there was so much pushback and now we've got kind of everyone. I mean, the medical, you know, you go to CDC and you go to various medical websites, they explain why masks make sense. It's so simple, but it really does make a difference. It really does. All right. Michelle, one more thing for us to worry about. <laughs> exactly. All right, but we appreciate it. Um, Michelle, thank you so much. Michelle Cortez, she's our, me- our our senior medical reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from Minneapolis. Check out her story, and I'll put it out on Twitter. It is indeed the most read story on the Bloomberg in the past 60 minutes. This story, too, among our most read on the Bloomberg, uh, this Bloomberg Businessweek story, it's about the London traders that – hit a half-a-billion-dollar jackpot when the price of oil went negative. Remember that story back in April? Well, Liam Vaughn is a financial investigations reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us uh, on the phone from London along with uh, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. He's on the phone in Massachusetts. Um, Joel, you know this is you know about being a guess on the right side of the trade or just making a really, really <laughs> smart bet.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, like this, the day that oil went negative was one that, um, you know, people were not really prepared for yeah. it. And, you know, despite a couple warnings from CME that it was a, a might have been a possibility, when it happened, uh, I just think it took a lot of people by surprise. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I guess there's a couple people in the world who could have been prepared for it. And that's sort of what Liam managed to unearth with this firm, um, little known in in London, called uh, Vega, and and Liam, uh, bring you in here. What what did you discover about how they how they pulled this off?
5: Yeah, so there was a lot of speculation after April twenty about how exactly oil had fallen sh- as far as it did like as you say there was some expectations because there was no demand for oil at the moment you know nobody's driving anywhere and nobody's making much so you know there, there's this kind of very unusual technical circumstances why you'd expect oil to be very cheap but nobody really predicted it would go as far as it did i mean it literally fell 40 dollars in a little over an hour and so there was sort of ummings and ahhings about whether maybe some sort of at least disrupted trading was responsible um And we managed to find out that actually there was a firm, this tiny little firm called Vega Capital London, which is literally, you know, an office above a pub with a few desks. Most of the guys there trade from home. Um, They're predominantly ex-pit traders, you know, quite kind of grizzled, (laughs) long-in-the-tooth veterans of the oil market um, who, you know, a lot of times used to buy and sell oil using hand signals, Have managed to stick it out. Uh, And then this particular day, uh, owing to these, you know, unprecedented swirling movements in the market, we're on the right side of this trade and and managed to to, to bag half a billion dollars, which, you know, considering the size of the firm and I think, you know, considering their normal earnings capacity is just an incredible sum.
0: It's mind-blowing. And I love how you say in your story, Liam, you know, this is a company, as you said, most of them are working from home. There's not a lot of information and that their website, the company website, has remained under construction on LinkedIn since it was founded a few years ago, right? So there's not a lot known about this firm. So is it a case that they were just on the right side of the... I mean, obviously they were, but how were they able to pull this off? And I just wonder what regulators... You know, they've got to be scratching their head about how did this firm do it?
5: Yes, yeah, so our very own Matt Levine is really good <laughs> in explaining this stuff. And he's absolutely right in, in sort of couching it as somewhere between hedging and potential manipulation. Um, and that's the kind of messy quagmire that the regulators are going to have to um, sort of get through and, and make a decision on. But essentially what they were doing and um, what – is a kind of feature of the oil market, is that you can buy oil throughout the day but not know the price, and you just agree to buy oil or sell oil at whatever the settlement price ends up later that day. So what these panning guys did, knowing that um, we were likely on a very downward day, is they bought up as much oil uh, in this kind of, what's called the trade at settlement market as possible, which meant that they were committed to buying Thousands of barrels of oil at whatever the price was at 230. But then throughout the day, they're also selling oil uh, to kind of offset their position. And, uh, you know, according to our sources, they were selling very aggressively in unison uh, in the last kind of, you know, period of the day, few minutes really of the day. And they, their trading coincided with a complete exodus of buyers uh, and it contributed, you know, to this massive downward fall in the market. Um, now, as we point out, you know, there are strict rules around trading at settlement. You're not supposed to trade in such a way as to try and deliberately move the settlement price to try and profit in another market, and people have been in, you know, in, in trouble for that previously. Mm. Um, and so what the regulators will have to determine is whether these guys who were aggressively you know, hammering the, the market at the end of the day were, were legitimately hedging their position, or they were actually trying to to you know, blast through the market. Um, and, and that reminds me. Of it. It's,
4: it, it gets really technical there, um, and, and you know, one reason, Liam, that um, as you write in the story, that, that this is complicated for regulators. Um, uh, is something that you also know a little bit about uh, from from your book, um, because bringing a case, you actually have to show intent, which means you have to get your hands on some stuff that shows, uh, you know, in paper, in writing, that somebody knew what they were doing. So, so how, how often are regulators able to pull that off? Yeah, thank you, Joel, for, for mentioning the book. <laughs> I've Just written <laughs> uh, this other book called
5: Flash Crash and it is worth mentioning because it's actually strikingly similar situation to this whereby you had the flash crash in two thousand and ten and there was this big sort of scrutiny after the event and then a couple of years later it emerged that this guy in the Sorral his bedroom may have, you know, through his disruptive trading, actually been a significant contributor towards it. And this is a very, you know, very kind of reminiscent situation um and yeah to, to your point um you know historically the CFTC and other authorities have really struggled to bring and make stand manipulation cases because it's not enough just to sh- sort of show from the data or even from from messages and things that people intended to move the market you have to actually kind of show with beyond a reasonable doubt that the market wouldn't have moved anyway and it's actually very hard to do that Um, So in the Sorrell case, the reason he got in trouble is because uh, when they arrested him, they found his computer, and there was actually videos of him, unbelievably, trading. Um, And also, quite early in his career, he sent emails talking about his plans to sort of manipulate the market. Um, So they had that hard evidence, but Sorrell was pretty careless in that respect. And if these guys um, or any, you know, uh, traders have, have been sort of following the news over the last few years, they'll be pretty savvy to uh, the need to communicate in an in a effective and efficient way, um, and you know a lot of, uh, of uh, means of communication these days are fully encrypted and stuff, so right, right. even if the regulators suspect there's, you know, there's something untoward here, actually being able to, to charge anyone is a different matter
0: well. It's pretty incredible and as sophisticated and complicated and even with all the regulations we have to see this kind of a trade, it's it's pretty remarkable. Um, Liam, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It is, as we said, among our most read stories. On the Bloomberg, uh, Liam Vong, our financial investigations reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from London, along with Jill Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He's on the phone from Massachusetts. And do check out Liam's book, Flash Crash, A Trading Savant, A Global Manhunt, and the Most Mysterious Market Crash in History. That book just came out in May of this year. In this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Small Business Survival Guide, um, we've been talking a lot about small business and how they're getting through the pandemic. We're going to talk this week about preparing your business for for uncertainty, which is one thing I feel like we kicked off the show, Doug and I, Doug Krisner, talking about that specifically. Joining us right now is Bloomberg News Editor Demetra Kesanides. She joins us on the phone, and I believe she's in New York City today, along with Hunter Lovins, board member at Simplify Power on the phone from Colorado. Um, great to have both of you with us. Um, Demetra, let's kick it off, because you've been you know, tracking small business uh, for us week to week. Tell us a little bit about... Um, the thinking on this week's topic, because I do feel like the one thing people are certain about is that they just don't know about the rest of the year and really 2021. Exactly. <laughs> Um, It's true. And,
6: you know, what was compelling about this, especially to Nick, we've talked to him before also, Liber, uh, when he first met the folks at Simplify Power, they are makers of sustainable, safer batteries based in California. We've written about them before. And we've been in touch with the CEO. Uh, he's recently been in touch with Hunter and talking about something they've done called scenario planning, which really has been an incredibly useful tool to anticipate, I mean, it's not really about, it's, it's sort of putting different scenarios before people of, at the company and really testing out, you know, what the company can withstand, how it can react, what it can do, what tools it has. It can It can be something that you use to decide about your supplies, about, you know, how much you need to kind of stockpile in terms of whatever it is that you make, um, you know, where how you're going to deal with getting products to your customers, um so to some degree to a very large degree from what we've heard from them this has really been very helpful to them in weathering this period in a way right. that many other small businesses haven't been able
0: to So Hunter come on in on this and you know it's so timely because tomorrow I'm getting ready to talk to we have uh, a group of CEOs that we regularly talk to as part of our Bloomberg Live breakaway group and they're all wondering about reopening and what the you know, second half talk you know, looks like. And this whole idea of scenario planning, I think, fits right into this. Tell us a little bit about what you guys did and how it, w- and how it really helped you. It's the most
3: powerful tool I'm aware of to, for a business to figure out how to deal with uncertainty. It's, in effect, an over-the-horizon look at what might be coming at you which then enables you to test your strategy against a variety of mutually inconsistent but plausible possible futures, the goal being to find a strategy that, as Royal Dutch Shell, which invented this discipline, calls a no-regrets strategy. (laughs) And it's a process that I help companies go through in a very short period of time. At Simplify, we took... uh, I showed them a PowerPoint presentation the evening before. Then it took about four hours the next day. They involved basically everybody in the company. And even if you got no value out of the scenarios, just getting everybody in the company together and surfacing your assumptions is an incredibly good way to engage your employees. In this case, the initial time we did it November last year The crew was not being terribly imaginative in terms of what could go wrong. And I said, guys, get a little wild and crazy. What if we had a pandemic? And Catherine von Berg, the CEO, looked at the ceiling, rolled her eyes. But then she started thinking, you know, Simplify gets a lot of its materials from China. What if there were a pandemic? What if our supply chains broke down? What if it came here? How would we keep the company operating? And so she started putting in place the mental capacity so that when in December, word started coming out of China that there's this weird disease that's killing people. She went into overdrive. And as a result, uh, the company's profits this year are up about 30% over last year. It's doing very well. It was shut down for all of two days over a weekend to do a deep cleaning and to put in place the safety provisions. It was deemed an essential enterprise, and it's rolling. It's doing just great.
0: Hunter, how like wild is that, that a year ago, that that's exactly the you know, kind of crisis situation that you guys brought up?
3: The discipline of scenario planning has you look at what are called the steep forces, social, technological, economic, environmental, and political. What's really happening out there in the world where you might want to think about what's the impact that this going to be on your company? And one of the things that's been predicted by the scientists Mm -hmm. for a long time is pandemics. It's not an implausible outcome. So I was just trying to get them to think about what could go
0: wrong, guys? And right. how are we going to deal with it if it does? Yeah. It, then it did. It, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And Demetra just got about 20 second, 30 seconds here. I mean, yeah, it is pretty, you know, when you think about scenarios, that's not may, maybe the first one that comes to mind, but, you know, here we are.
6: No, absolutely not. I mean, I suspect, again, Hunter probably used it as one of many examples out of those areas that we touched on. It just so happened it was happening. Yeah. You know, whatever your business, this can be super useful. You're going you're gonna to customize right. it in different ways, but it's very forward-looking.
0: Well, this was great and really helpful. Uh, Demetra, thank you so much. Demetra Casanidis, editor at Bloomberg News, and, of course, Hunter Lovins, board member at Simplify Power, joining us on the phone from Colorado.
1: I'm in
5: my car
0: is the drive to the close. That
1: punk music will drive us till the dawn.
0: On Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Jason Kelly and Carol Master Forgot where I was for a second. Uh, It's been that sort of day. It's been a disruptive sort of day, Carol Master. So that's why we're going to talk about disruption in the stock market, disruption in stocks, and maybe some disruptive names. Happy to have with us Prabha Ram. She is Portfolio Manager for American Century Investments. Joining us on the phone from New York City. Prabha, really nice to have you with us.
7: Thank you for having me, Jason and Carol.
1: So disruption certainly has been the name of the game here in 2020. How do you approach it as an investor? Because you have, I believe, and keep me honest here, you look after the Focus Dynamic Growth Strategy Fund uh, for American Century. And we've had uh, maybe not so much focus, but we certainly had a lot of dynamism and maybe even some growth in this market.
7: Yeah. So, yes, um, I do uh, co-manage the Focus Dynamic Growth Fund. And, This is a fund where we try to keep the names limited Jason, so 30 to 45 names. But what we're focused on is early to rapid growth phases uh, for companies, and that automatically leads to innovation and disruption, just like you pointed out. And disruption comes in several sizes and shapes. Uh, We all think about e-commerce. Most of us are not going to stores anymore. We buy more online. And uh, we've had reports that, you know, three years' worth of growth has been squeezed into three months. And apparently, in e-commerce, the McKinsey report tells you that it's 10 years' worth of growth in three months. So uh, just astounding numbers there. But um, disruption is not just in technology. Uh, it also is in traditional industries. It is also in uh, you know, healthcare, for example. So we look at disruption pretty much across the board, if you will.
0: Yeah, I just want to point out too, I mean, the fund, the American Century Focused Dynamic Growth Fund that you co-manage, um, Amazon, Alphabet, and Tesla are among the top holdings. The fund has returned nearly 22% on average annually in each of the past five years Putting it in the 98th percentile for funds in that category, so it's really been a top performer. And you do look at the holdings, and they are companies that we know. How often are you guys, since you seem to kind of keep it down to a core portfolio? How long do you kind of hold on to something that gets into um, into to one of the holdings?
7: So you know, back to what I said. You know, we're looking at companies in the early and rapid growth phases. And uh, I will touch on uh, Google and Amazon, you know, that are not particularly early, but Mm. we'll talk about that. So, however, so since we get in early, we hold for long periods of time. So historically, it's been an average holding period of about five years um, because we want to stay with these names and, you know, see them grow and, you know, get there early, obviously. Um, So back to your question on, uh, you know, Google and Amazon, So these are not technically new companies, but still, uh, you know, rapid growth phase. Uh, Amazon, for example, you know, with the online retail, their dominance there, and obviously the trend towards e-commerce has uh, accelerated here. And not just that, but to start this whole AWS, um, you know, which really was a product that was focused internally, um, right? So their servers ran on this product and they made it available to the world. So... So we don't fit out names just because of their age. We just look at their innovation cadence and whether that leads to growth for our investors. Um, and so Amazon fits that bill. Google, the same way. They're very dominant in the digital market, but over in the 20-plus years that they've been in business, uh, they've had uh, you know 20% type growth um, in the top right. line throughout that time. So obviously, they fit as well. And uh, you know they're obviously disrupting the digital advertising market but also they have investments in YouTube right. you know uh, Android Waymo and and you know and the list goes on
1: So disruption as you well know and we talk about a lot on this show doesn't just come in the form of technology companies Boston Beer uh, the maker of Sam Adams that's mm-hmm. one uh, that you have held over the years tell us about that and this the disruption and how it manifests uh, in the beer business
7: Yeah, you know, this one is a fascinating story because it's a family-owned business in a very tough category. There are huge players in the beer business, but what Boston Beer has done and done over and over again is create new categories. So going back all the way to craft beers, um, so they were the ones that pioneered that and then followed that up with hot teas and now hot seltzers. Um, with the Truly brand, and the Truly lemonade is really resonating, and it is a product for the times because what it has is, uh, you know, it is a beer. However, it has 100 calories, 1 gram of sugar, it's gluten-free, and uh, the forecasts are that the category itself will grow at 200% um, just in 2020. And um, Boston Beer is the only company that has actually gained share um, in this year. Obviously, uh, you know, with a lot of us sitting at home, we're not just working from home. It looks like we're drinking at home, too. Yes. So that
1: helps Confirmed. To That's confirmed. <laughs> yeah, and I can guarantee you that our uh, producer, Paul Brennan, who's on vacation right now, uh, dollars to donuts, he's drinking to Sam Adams. Uh,
0: Boston right Bear now. is up 119% this year.
1: Yeah, totally checks out. Uh, very briefly, uh, Prabhupada, got to ask you, just a minute left. Talk about Tesla for a second. It's a name we're obsessed with. Um, We've had a lot of bulls and a few bears on here. This has defied gravity in many ways.
7: Yes. So, you know, Tesla is, you know, textbook disruption, if you will, Um, you know, just because the whole concept of electric vehicles, and not just electric vehicles, but the entire um, supply chain and actually engineering it at scale globally. Mm. So, And then that's the first. And the second thing is, this is the first automobile, which is a software-first model. In other words, if there is a fix, more often than not, it's coming over the air versus having to drive somewhere to get your car serviced. And then the third thing is, you know, it's not just disruption in the car, the battery itself. However, it's also disruption in the way to go to market with the, you know, direct-to-customer, no dealerships. And then we can talk about autonomous vehicles, you know, the car trucks, tractors, the energy storage that doesn't get a lot of airtime. But uh, it's just, you know, it's kind of a disruption package, I believe. At every point. That's why we own it, you know. That's why we own it. However, you know, of course, the Uh, controversy and the their side of the argument has to be acknowledged as well. Uh, That being said, you know, uh, the innovation is there and that's why we hold this down.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Prabhu Ram, Portfolio Manager for American Century Investments, looking after the Focus Dynamic Growth She's the co-manager of that fund. Joined us on the phone from New York City. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.